So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges, continue our teaching in Judges today. Judges chapter 4 will be our passage. We'll be looking at actually verses, or not verses, but chapters 4 and 5 together today. Judges chapter 4 and 5. As we begin this time in God's Word, let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we come to you now and ask for your guidance, your help as we open your scriptures, and we would pray now that we would uh, have our hearts exposed, our lives um, changed, that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever missed a point in a book or a movie about halfway through it, realizing that you're unsure of what this book or this movie is about. Maybe if you're like me, uh, sometimes when I get real still and if the movie's not too uh, adventurous, I will oftentimes nod off and then 10 minutes later, what's going on? Um, maybe it's a crucial detail or something you missed. Maybe you had to step out for a moment. And that one detail or that crucial thing that you miss has really impacted your entire understanding of what was going on through the storyline. Well, I think that the same danger exists when we read the Bible. If we're not careful, we will not only miss the point of what the Bible is about, but there's a real possibility that we will not read the Bible in a way that it was intended to be read. Take the book of Judges, for example. In the book of Judges, we have the roles of various characters, of various men and women who are raised up to serve in the, in the position of a judge, a deliverer of sorts, a savior, a small s of, of sorts. And certainly throughout the book of Judges, we see them come and we see them go. We see them, uh, and some of them are very much explained in great detail. We follow their lives at some level, and others are there and gone, briefly. If we're not careful, we would say, well, the book of Judges is about the different kinds of judges. Or we could look at the fact that the book of Judges is marking a historical period of time within the life of God's people, Israel. And we could say, well, the book of Judges is ultimately about the people of God and how they failed. Their cycle of sin and repentance and deliverance and how that's repeated over and over again and how must be that Judges is ultimately about Israel. Well, while certainly the book of Judges has many judges and is a story, a, a narrative documenting the historical period of time in which Israel lived in what we know as the promised land, we need to understand that the book of Judges is ultimately about God. While it does include judges, and while it does include Israel, the book is ultimately about God. And we could say the same is true for the entire Bible. The Bible is not just simply a roadmap telling us how to do certain things and, and what to do and when to do it, although it does give us instruction in that way. The Bible in its entirety is ultimately a testimony of God's revelation to us, telling us about who he is, telling us about who we are and what he has done to accomplish our rescue, our salvation, our 
deliverance. And Judges is really a, a, a snapshot of just that. And while we read through this book, it's quite grim. It's, it's, it's heavy, isn't it? You read these accounts of, of all of these battles and the gruesome things, the gruesome details that come and go in it. And how Israel finds themselves back in the same spot that they were before a particular judge came and then died. This book teaches us just how faithful and how good God is to love such obstinate sinners like us. Judges is ultimately a book that teaches us about God's grace in light of how foolish we are. It exposes the reality and the depths of our sin and our depravity, how it's far worse than we realize. That we need ultimately a deliverer outside of ourselves. It teaches us that only God, only God can truly rescue us. And it teaches us that our response to him ought to be one of faith and confidence. As we see yet another testimony today in our text of God's faithfulness to deliver his people against overwhelming circumstances, uh, a testimony of how he has come yet again through the work of a judge. In this account, several judges. To bring his people out of their rebellion and to bring them out from under the hand of an oppressor. We see just how good God is in that light. And yet we're going to zero in specifically today into the response that we ought to have towards him as he does provide deliverance. Not just for his people then, but deliverance for us now. Faith in God's provision. Faith, confidence in God's provision is is crucial to the life and health of us as the people of God. The absence of such faith will always prove empty and be filled with disappointment and rejection. So today I want us to consider three truths specifically about faith in light of God's provision, in light of God's faithfulness, in light of God's goodness, how genuine faith ought to respond to that goodness and kindness that he has given us in light of of the corruption that is so prevalent in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Three truths about faith, the need of a proper response to God's deliverance today. I want us to look at these together as we walk through this text. The first truth I want us to see is, is the need for what we would say genuine faith, the need for genuine faith. Let's look at chapter four, verses one through three. It says this, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashereth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out for the Lord's help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. You read the book of Judges, the people of God become quite predictable, don't they? I mean, here we are again, the evil that's present in the people of God, the Judge Ehud. What a story from last week, right? I don't think we have to rehash all of those gruesome details, but, but Ehud now has come and gone. He dies. And the people, predictable as they are, again do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They sin, they grow desperate, 
They cry out, God raises up a judge, there's peace, and they go back to sin over and over again. As we considered uh, for a bit last week, not only does this tell us something about the nature of the people when it comes to them going back so quickly and easily to sin, it also tells us about uh, the reality of the nature of sin. This is not something that is easily overcome. Even though Israel had enjoyed now 80 years, this is uh, back in, in chapter three, verse 30, the land had rest for 80 years. They now find themselves going back to old habits. Yeah, sure, it's another generation that has come, but why wasn't the faith passed down? Why wasn't the, the truth guarded? What was the disconnect? Why was it so easy for that generation now to go back and to be doing evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, again, this passage, along with the others, show us an unfortunate pattern. Each time the judge dies, Israel goes back to doing what is evil. Take away the judge, take away the leader, take away the external restraints, and Israel's true character is revealed. Israel's true problem was not the lack of a judge. Their true need was not the need of some external restraint, some, some leader of type. See, Israel's true problem was that they had grown too dependent upon those external restraints. They had grown too dependent upon an external salvation instead of looking deep within their own hearts. Compare it to a high school classroom. Imagine a high school classroom. Right? Some of you don't want to imagine a high school classroom, but I want you to imagine a high school classroom. Now, let's assume the teacher within that class is a pretty strong and capable teacher. During the time in which that teacher is in the room, there's some sense of order, some semblance of teaching and learning going on. But just talking hypothetically here, imagine for a moment that this teacher, that this teacher steps out of the room for a few minutes. What tends to happen in a high school classroom when this teacher steps out of the room? Do you think that continued learning and continued meditation upon the math formulas is going on? Probably not. Oftentimes what happens, at least my experience had told me, that when the teacher stepped out of the classroom, chaos breaks loose. Paper wads and all kinds of other bad things become going across the room and, and you know, today kids think it's cute to rearrange their seats, you know, and, and those kinds of things. I mean, all kinds of things can happen when the teacher leaves. That external restraint is no longer there and chaos abounds. And I know you're thinking, well, that's not my kid. Well, you keep thinking that. This is, a, I think, a snapshot, if you will, a picture of what's happening here. You remove that leader, you remove that external restraint, and Israel just goes back to, to, to sinning. They go back to doing what is natural to them. Pastor by the name of Dale Ralph Davis commenting on this passage, he said this, there is something wrong with religion when its degree of fidelity depends solely on outside pressures, influence, and leadership then we are Christian only because of our surroundings or because of the expectations of Christian people around us. 
and lack a genuine internal work of God. Now, there's something about external restraint or external pressure that, that produces conformity, isn't there? You think about when you've got something that needs guidance, something that needs um, corralling or, or, or shepherding or, or, or organized, there's some kind of pressure added to it, some kind of restraint added to it, whether it's a person or, or some kind of process, conformity will, will happen in some way, some fashion or another. Now, I'm not saying that that kind of conformity, that kind of pressure is a bad thing. Oftentimes it's needed. It's one of the reasons we need and have a government, right? We have government as a means of some kind of external restraint to keep order in our nation. So that's why uh, government serves a role. It's one of the things that we need to see beneficial in having government. But, but government is not ultimate. While it does provide the needed restraints, the needed pressures, the needed boundaries that, 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 that we have, that we have need for, uh, it can't ultimately produce in us what we need to be reconciled to God. Now, sometimes I wonder, I hear Christians talk, and I don't live in a cave during the week, and so I, I often hear people talking or observing their Facebook posts. I'm not, I'm not a stalker. Well, maybe I am a little bit on Facebook, but sometimes I wonder, I wonder if Christians fall into this naive trap of thinking that if we can just get the right elected official in office, this nation's going to be one to Jesus. Don't be so fooled. Now, do I think it's important that we exercise our God-given right to elect Governing officials, absolutely. You need to do that with wisdom and with discernment and through much prayer. It's your responsibility. But don't think for a moment that if we can just get the right person in the right place, peace will abound. Jesus will set up his throne in Washington, D.C., and, and all will be well. And so what we're talking about here in this context, context of our own hearts, is that God calls for us to trust him in a way that is lasting, and that trust cannot be ultimately in some external restraints. Because you see what happens. When that's removed, what happens? They go right back to doing what they did before. As leader or no leader, Israel should have remained faithful. True faith will, will stand on its own on. When, when you think about what we're called to be and called to do, and certainly when you get over into the New Testament and you see the work of the gospel in our lives, there's a place for leaders, there's a place for elders. We didn't just waste time this morning installing someone else to church leadership. There's a place for that. It is right and it is good and it is helpful. But if you are banking your salvation on Rick Benefield or Adam Polk or any other leader, you are deceived. I mean, if your hope is within some famous preacher you like listening to or some church leader or some Christian leader, some book that they've written, if you're placing all of your hope, what if they fall? What if they fail? What if they die? Will your faith crumble? I wonder how many of us in this room this morning might find ourselves in similar shoes like Israel. Maybe the, maybe the only reason you're here today 
is because your mom and dad made you come. Maybe the only reason that you came was because if you didn't, you know that there would be difficulty in the home. Maybe your motive here today is simply to keep peace with your spouse. Maybe you really don't want to be here today, but you know it pleases your spouse and you're gonna come just to keep the peace at home, knowing that, that that's going to cause problems if you don't. Maybe, maybe you came here today to impress someone or to gain some kind of approval as if God will be approved with me, he will approve me just because I'm present today. Friends, we cannot trust our hearts to some kind of external conformity, some kind of outside pressure. If the only reason that you came today was due to some kind of outside restraint or some kind of outside influence or pressure, that's clearly not what God desires of you in the long run. It may be a good thing in the temporary to get you to the right place of where you need to be, but your ultimately, ultimate need is not that of some kind of external restraint. It is an internal transformation. Genuine faith is not based on external influences, but upon internal change. This is the change that Israel needed. It's clear that many of them didn't have it. Friends, our hope ultimately does not rest in people, at least in the sense of earthly leaders, whether they're in the church or not. Our ultimate need and our ultimate hope does not rest in something outside of ourselves in some kind of system or in some kind of other person or influence, but rather it does rest outside of ourselves. It rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. God who is holy, loving sinners who are not, willing to sacrifice himself and provide his own son as the means through which we can be forgiven and reconciled to him through his life, death, and resurrection. He lived a life of perfection. He died a death for sinners. He was raised from the dead to demonstrate his power and victory over sin and death. And the Bible says that if we would simply trust in him and in that, what he did for us, that our sins would be forgiven, that our standing with God would be restored and that we would have hope of everlasting life. That's where your hope rests. That is what begins that internal work of transformation when you trust in Christ, he takes resident in your, residence in your life and begins that work of transformation. Our true need is the gospel. The need for genuine faith, afraid that many in Israel had a superficial faith. They had a faith that was dependent upon, okay, as long as we have this leader, it's better that we have this judge than to live under 20 years of cruel oppression. But immediately when that judge is gone, back to sin they go, back to idolatry, back to evil. And it just shows that we need something more than a mere fellow man. We need Christ. Yes, Christ is not present yet here in the Old Testament, but it's laying that foundation forward as we anticipate this coming Messiah. We can now speak of that in light of this text because we know he has come. The need for genuine faith is present, but let's talk about the possession of genuine faith. Let's look at verse four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, 
who was, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up for, to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, and taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give, you, give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called out Zebulun and Phtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. While the nation, generally speaking, was in decline, people of God, there were those who remained faithful to God. You have a prophetess, for example, Deborah, who was a faithful witness for the Lord, a faithful servant. You have others who were present, such as Barak, even though he seems here to be a little wavering in his response. So we have a prophetess, Deborah, who was doing judgment. She was making judgment. She was basically serving in a civil role there. People would come to her kind of for um, many hearings, if you will, and, and get judgments based upon her, her ruling. It was not a church office because it wasn't an office within the, in the gathered people of God, but rather it was a civil role and responsibility that she had. And in verse six, we see that she summons Barak to go and lead the people to attack Jabin's army. Jabin was this evil, cruel oppressor who had dominated the people of God and brought them under his cruel tyranny. And so she reminds Barak here, has not the Lord called you to go and do exactly what he has said to take 10,000 people and that he will give Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, into your hands? So you see, she's urging him. Go do this, what the Lord has called you to do. And so Barak says, okay, I'll go, but only if you go with me. I'll go, but only if you go with me. Now, there's been two different takes on this. Some take this as a lack of faith on Barak's account. They would say that because he was wavering here, there's some wavering. He's like, I'm not gonna go unless you go with me. There's some kind of fear here. And the result of that is that now no longer will he be credited with the victory, but the victory will be credited to a woman. People of God would ultimately be delivered through the hands of a woman, and most would anticipate that that would be Deborah here, but it's not even gonna be her, So we will see later in the text. Others see this as a recognition that Deborah has something to offer, so why would he not ask her to come? She's a godly woman who speaks the truth, why wouldn't he want her to go? So it would be more of a statement of fact, not a verdict. And people talk about the difference and most tend to think that there's this wavering here on Barack's account, that he's struggling. And so he's asking for some kind of reinforcement. But regardless, what is true, what is true is, is that Barack is considered a man of faith. You say, well, where do you get that in the text? Well, I don't in this text, I get it from Hebrews chapter 11. If you were to turn to Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, we know that Hebrews chapter 11 is what we often call the faith hall of fame, documenting and recognizing several men and women of God throughout the ages who were faith 
faithful people, men and women of faith who trusted God. And this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, here he is, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. So here in Hebrews 11, it's clear that Barak, this guy here in Judges chapter four, is a man of faith and through faith conquered armies. So even if it is true, which many do think that he is wavering here, he's struggling here. If it is true that he's wavering and that fear is kind of setting in and, and he's not real certain, he's like, I'll go, but you've gotta go with me, kind of a coward. He's nevertheless considered to be a man of faith. And I think it teaches us that God can take even our weak faith, even our weak and struggling faith and use it for his glory. He's still willing to go. Maybe with some conditions, but he's still willing to go and do what the Lord called him to do. Several important facts that we need to see about genuine faith here specifically demonstrated in this account. Number one, faith listens to the right sources. Faith listens and it listens to the right sources. Barak, even though he sets conditions, what does he do? He listens to Deborah. Never speaks, she reminds him of what he had been told of the Lord. She just simply reminds him and says, listen, are you gonna go do this or not? And he says, yes, you gotta come with me or no if, if, if you don't. And when the time came, we know that he goes, we, we read that and we'll read more in just a minute. But we know that when the time came, he's willing to go and to face Sisera, Jabin's commander. And Deborah goes with him. Now this Sisera guy, he was a vicious man. We'll talk more about some of the cruel things that he did in just a moment, but this general with 900 chariots of iron, no laughing matter, this was not something to just simply play around with. And frankly, when it comes to whether or not Barak would go with or without Deborah, it wasn't gonna make much of a difference if she was with him or not. We're talking 900 chariots of iron. We know that the people of God were afraid of the chariots of iron, we've seen that before. It just for some reason, these chariots of iron were vicious that freaked them out and, and they didn't know what to do. They would often stop when they were facing 900 of them. Not just one here, we're talking 900. And so when the time came, Barak listens to his God's servant, Deborah, and was now going to be a, a tool used in the hand of God for victory. It's a little, just a little reminder here that while he might have been wavering and struggling he did listen and he did respond to what the Lord told him to do. Many times we have competing sources of authority in our lives when it comes to making certain decisions. Well, you could say making any decision, any decision that you make, we have competing sources of knowledge or sources of authority that, that draw for our allegiance and draw for our hearts. Such sources include experience, reason, philosophy, and certainly we'd include scripture. 
We could add maybe some more to those. Those are big ones, right? My experience informs what I do. My reasoning informs what I do. The philosophy that I've bought into informs what I do. And then there are scripture, God's revelation informing what I do. Too often, friends, too often, we are making decisions based upon experience, reason, and other philosophies instead of God's word. So subtle, so dangerous, and so prevalent. How many times have we made a decision based upon some experience that we have had and so our experience becomes now the driving force of what we're deciding to do no matter what God's word says? My experience tells me this, my experience is informing me or some kind of rational, rationalization, some kind of reasoning. I mean, Barack could have done that here. His experience would say, I've got foot soldiers, they've got chariots. My experience has been those don't fare well together when they're in battle. Therefore, my reasoning is this is not going to go well. If I was to go up against them, it's not going to fare well. And so he could have implied, employed experience. He could have employed reason to this and said, no, I will not go. But what does he do? He does listen. And even though he may have been struggling, he goes. He listened to God. In spite of all of, the, all of the things that were stacked against him, he listened, he allowed the scripture, allowed God's voice to be the foundation, to be the source of information, to be the authority upon his life, and he does exactly what he's commanded to do. Oh. I'm tempted to preach the next six weeks on this because I think this is such a problem in the church. I'm not talking about the world. Us. How often do we as God's people make foolish, unwise decisions based upon our experiences? Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but my experience is telling me this. Friends, stop and listen to yourself. Faith doesn't listen to yourself. Faith listens to God and obeys what God has called us to do and to be regardless of what our experience tells us, regardless of what some kind of philosophy or reason tells us, you will actually find how reasonable scripture truly is. Faith listens. Number two, faith acts. Look at verses 11. Let's continue. Now, Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. This is in the northern part of the promised land. They're actually from the southern part. Now they're in the northern part. That's actually a critical uh, piece of this, this puzzle if you were to see it on a map. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hasherath Haguyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot, fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hisarim Hagim, Hisarith Hagim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. 
But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For the, there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. Jael went out to meet him and said, come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, the people of Israel had this, again, thing about chariots of iron, and a group of foot soldiers was no match for these ferocious chariots. He was facing overwhelming odds, but Barak went to the fight anyway. He obeyed God, and he acted upon that faith, acted upon what God had told him, and Sisera and all of his chariots and the men with them were routed that day. Only Sisera was able to escape on foot, ironically. He didn't have his chariot anymore, but that was short-lived. He goes to the Kenites, to the camp nearby. He finds this woman, Jael. He goes into her tent, asks to be hidden. She is kind and very hospitable to him. And when he falls asleep, she drives a tent peg through his temple into the ground. And just in case you needed to know, Verse 21 is there to help you. And he died. <laughs> According to the next chapter, it's apparent that not only was Sisera a strong commander, he was also in the business of sex trafficking. In fact, if you read verse 30 of chapter five it, says, five, it says that he divided the spoil of those who he dominated so that every man had a womb or two. How ironic, how ironic that this vicious man who abused women now finds himself dead by the hands of a woman. Not only ironic, that Sisera finds his demise by the hands of this woman, it's ironic because he was a man that used to turn lives of many women into horrible nightmares. Now he finds his own life ended by the hands of not just one woman, but really two, if you count Deborah in the background. This enemy had been oppressed. This enemy had oppressed Israel cruelly for 20 years. Just think about the fear that women faced, particularly. Jabin and his armies was a frightening reality for the people of God. 900 chariots of iron. All they knew was oppression for 20 years, and yet Barak was willing against all odds to do what the Lord had called him to do. Ultimately understood and believed that if victory was going to come, it had to come just as Deborah had said, reminded him of, just as God had said to him. And I wonder how hesitant we are to obey God at times when, when we think we're up against the odds, when we think that the deck is stacked against us, when, it, when, when we think that there's no way that we can do what God's telling me to do and things go well. I'm reminded of another verse in another place that says, is the Lord's hand shortened 
Friend, I wonder how oftentimes we rationalize our obedience away. How we allow our experience to tell us there's no use trying. But when God has spoken that we would be faithful like Barak, faithful like Deborah, even faithful like J.L., we would serve the Lord. Friends, it might not be that we have 900 chariots of iron or some wicked ruler that oppresses us. The fact remains we still have an enemy that is alive and well, that is like a lion seeking whom he may devour and destroy. He's doing everything that he can do to devour you, to confuse you, to deceive you, to destroy you. And God has given you a clear word. Not only a clear word of promise, he's given you a clear word of victory. Faith is active. Do you trust him? Do you obey him? Number three, faith is humble. Quickly, Barak leads his army 10,000 down the mountain, attacks Sisera, we know, and he dies. As the story progresses, it becomes more and more apparent that Barak is not seeking his own honor. And you could say the same thing for Deborah even. They simply wanna be faithful and contribute to the deliverance of God's people. You say, well, how do you get that? Well, Deborah tells him, you have gotta go do this and now you're not gonna get the glory or the credit for it. And he goes anyway. He does it anyway because he's not after his own glory. He, he, did, he would have never known that he was gonna be given honorable mention in Hebrews 11. Would have never known that. Probably best that he wasn't told that, right? Sister's in comes the hand of a woman, a woman that wasn't even Deborah, this J.L. who emerges here in this text. You see that Barak is not bent on taking the credit. You see that he's not seeking glory for himself. The point is that the Lord brought the victory through an unexpected person. Friends, true faith is a faith centered upon the Lord and it doesn't seek self-glory. It's a great reminder that God is the one who brings victory and it shouldn't matter to us who God chooses to use to bring those victories. It shouldn't matter to you that, well, why did so-and-so get picked to be able to do this? We should give God praise that God was faithful to provide someone to bring the victory. And then the response of genuine faith, very quickly. Verse 23, on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And then you go into chapter five, we're not gonna read it all, just the first verse here or two. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. While there are many human Instruments involved in chapter four. What chapter five makes clear and what chapter four has stated already is that the ultimate victory, the ultimate hero is not Barak, it's not Deborah, it's not Jael, it is God. It is God who brought the victory. Verse 14 of chapter four, does not the Lord go before you? Verse 15 of chapter four, and the Lord routed Sisera. Verse 23 of chapter four, so on that day God subdued Jabin. God is the one credited. God is the one given glory. God is the one given honor. And chapter five now is this song, this duet, if you will, that Deborah and Barak sing together in this aftermath of Jabin and Sisera's defeat. Now, it's not your typical church hymn. Let me just say that. If you were to read this, it's, it's really weird. It's kind of a weird song, 
But it's, what it's doing is it's simply recognizing, if we had time, we would unpack it fully, but it's simply recognizing that God is victorious. It's a victory celebration. It's acknowledging God's hand in and behind and all throughout this event of deliverance. Song commemorating this specific day in the life of Israel. They're being held captive for 20 years by an evil king. In fact, you can read some of this song. Some of this song documents what that was like. Village life had ceased. Highways were abandoned. Normal life didn't exist under the rule of this oppressor. Now they've been released from that. And they sing and they respond with this song of rejoicing. There's several aspects. If we had time that we could dive in into this song, this song is a natural response to their deliverance. It's God-centered, focused on God being the deliverer. It gives thanks to God for his provisions. It acknowledges human failure. It gives full expression. It gives expression to the full range of human emotions from jubilation to disappointment and questioning to righteous anger but it never descends into mere sentimentality. As these are clear truths that should mark our singing as well, but friends, we don't sing merely for a deliverance of 20 years. Our response of faith ought to be one of joy that lasts a lifetime because we've not been released from 20 years of bondage. We are celebrating a deliverance that God has accomplished through the saving work of his son that will last for eternity. So, as we close, you might come away from this passage doing exactly what I was trying to warn us about in the beginning. Be careful how you read the scriptures because some of us are into the details and we get bogged down into the details and you will come away today, some of you, all of you now that I'm gonna tell you this, Pastor, I get that, God's deliverance and all that stuff, praise God, he does that, but let's go back to the tent peg for a minute. Aren't we supposed to love our enemies and pray for them? Didn't she break two commandments? She deceived him and then she killed him. She lied and then she killed, she murdered. How does God approve of that? The tent peg. We need to understand that oftentimes the Bible and its narratives are more descriptive than prescriptive. Doesn't mean that we need to go around with tent pegs and you guys need to sleep with one eye opened. The message we take away is not whether or not it's okay to kill people with tent pegs. The message we need to cling to in this account is that God is so glorious that he will use unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes that will even mean including people acting in, his, in ways that he doesn't necessarily condone. How else would you explain the death of Jesus who wasn't killed with a mere tent peg? had stakes driven through his wrist and hands, murdered on a cross for your redemption. Some things that are mysterious to us, but if we get bogged down in those technicalities and wonder, we miss the glory of the deliverance that God has provided in unlikely people through unconventional methods, 
Don't miss the point of Judges. It is a narrative with many twists and turns, and if you're not careful, you might find yourself debating the details while missing the entire story of redemption that God provided for his obstinate, unworthy people. He's done the same for us. Let's give him praise. Let's pray. Father, you are good in every way. We thank you, we praise you, we honor you. God, not only have you revealed our sin, not only have you exposed what we truly are left to our own devices, left to our own selves, you have acted in an unselfish love to rescue us, to deliver us. God, we thank you that ultimately through the sending of your son into this world, your son who lived a perfect life, the life we should have lived, and yet your son who died for us, a death we all deserve, a judgment that we all deserve, Lord, taking upon himself the full wrath and judgment for our sins, Lord, so that your love could be known in our hearts and so that our hearts could be filled with that love and responded to in faith, so that we would be clothed in righteousness and cleansed by your blood. God, we thank you for the salvation that you provided for us through Christ. Lord, even as the Old Testament sets that stage for that great and final deliverer, we thank you that we can now look back and see how you have done it. You have provided once and for all the salvation that we could have never earned for ourselves, salvation we could have never gained for ourselves. God, you have been faithful. You are good, and we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.